1 Peter 3 verse 18 tells us for Christ also suffered once for sins the just for the unjust that he might bring us to God being put to death in the flesh but made alive by the spirit by whom he also went and preached to the spirits in prison who formerly were disobedient when once the divine long-suffering waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight souls, were saved through water. And this is also an antitype which now saves us, baptism, not the removal of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God angels and authorities and powers having been made subject to him and father we ask as always humbly for the help and the assistance of your holy spirit as we open your word lord reverently and and responsively we want to hear what it is that you desire to say to us this morning lord you know where we're at and you know where we've been and exactly what we need to hear from you god so we pray that through your living and powerful word, that by the ministry of your spirit's interpretation and application, you'd speak to our hearts individually and give us an ear to hear what your spirit would say to this part of your church. Bless your word as it goes forth now, Lord, and teach us. And we ask these things in Jesus' wonderful name. And everyone said, amen. Amen. You may be seated. You know, in God's economy, it seems that the way to profit is radically different than the way that things happen in this world. For example, it seems that you have to submit to conquer. You have to lose to gain, and you even have to, it seems, die to live. And you'll notice this morning that some of those very spiritual realities actually represent themselves here even as we look in these verses regarding the experience of our Lord Jesus Christ and how Jesus submitted to suffering and death and as a result of that actually became a conquering king and triumphed through his submission that he actually brought something profitable forth for our lives. Now, understanding context in Scripture is always extremely important whenever we study the Word of God. And I can't think probably of a more particular uh, uh, occasion when that is all the more essential, probably than in some of the verses that we find ourselves studying together this morning as we continue to move through Peter's letter. In light of some of the verses that clearly, as you can tell by reading them, are a little bit more difficult to try and understand and grasp the understanding and interpretation of them. The context here is specifically important all the more. And I would remind you, the context of what Peter is talking about in this section of his letter is suffering for righteousness sake. Suffering for doing good. Remember we saw in our study last week together, he said there in verse 14, even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, Peter told the Christians there, you are blessed. He then said to us as we left off in verse 16 and 17 that we should be seeking to have a good conscience that when they defame you as evildoers, those who revile your good conduct in Christ may be ashamed. For it is better, he said, if it is the will of God to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. 
So again, as we go into this passage this morning, which I will freely admit up front, has some technical ideas and some difficult things to interpret in these verses, it's important that we don't lose the context or understand the main theme of which the Word of God is communicating to us. And that main point essentially being suffering for doing good can actually still achieve something that brings about a greater purpose ultimately. As Peter is assuring these Christians that their suffering for righteousness sake and their suffering for doing good can actually be, as he said in verse 17, God's will for them. He now takes the opportunity in verse 18 as he transitions to move on to say, look, and let me set before you the greatest example of when that ever took place. And he points to our Lord Jesus. If you draw your attention with me back to verse 18, having just said, listen, sometimes it's the will of God. And if so, it's better to suffer for doing good than evil. Verse 18, he then said, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit. So Peter declares here how Jesus himself suffered, for what reason? For doing good, and that it was the will of God for Jesus to suffer, not for anything evil he had done, but Jesus, according to the will of God, suffered for doing good in order to what? provide access for you and I as sinful human beings to be able to have once again relationship with God despite our fallen condition. Now, as these believers were suffering in their day in the Roman Empire that Peter is writing to, no doubt, just like you and I, when you suffer, you get weary in it sometimes. If you're struggling this morning or dealing with some challenging time, you know that a part of suffering and going through problems is at times you get a little weary in the process. Sometimes you begin to lose perspective a little bit. And I think because of that, Peter here realized that as these Christians were maybe a bit disheartened in their suffering, it helped them to remember Jesus' experiences. And that's why he says here that even Christ has also suffered. And somehow, is it not true? And I don't understand how it works exactly, but I've experienced it personally that when we're struggling and suffering that as we reflect upon the sufferings of Jesus that there's something about that that gives us a measure of grace to endure what we're going through just a little easier and it kind of helps us retain our perspective a little bit in the midst of suffering and even assures us at times that it may not be necessarily that something's wrong because typically when we begin to suffer the devil on top of that wants to bombard our minds in every situation that something's wrong, this isn't God's will, and we start to wrestle. And there's something very helpful to remember that Jesus suffered according to the will of God. And it had a purpose, and God actually brought something beneficial out of it. Now note with me in our text, we're told here very clearly in verse 18 why Jesus suffered. Look there in the 18th verse. It says that Jesus suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, to bring us to God. Jesus suffered for sins. The Bible is very clear in teaching to us that all human beings alike are sinners. We have a lot of differences among us, but there is one thing that every single breathing soul on this planet shares in common, and that's this. We're all failures. 
We all make mistakes in thought, word, and deed. The Bible tells us there's none righteous, no, not one. Romans 3.23 says there is no difference. The idea is among us that we've all sinned and we've all fallen short of the glory of God. We are born sinful by nature and then because of that we live out the weakness of our sinful life by making mistakes in what we say and what we think and what we do. And, and, and the problem is, the Bible teaches that our sin is what separates us from a holy God. That sin causes separation in our lives from God experientially. That is that we're unable to have relationship with a holy, sinless God who the Bible says he's too holy and pure to look upon evil. And our sin ultimately, if not forgiven and resolved through the forgiveness that Jesus provides, can separate us from God eternally. In a place the Bible calls hell or the lake of fire, where if we do not allow our sins to be forgiven by God, that we will in a sense separate ourselves from God eternally after our death. Our sin causes a break in our connection with a holy God and our sin must be removed. It must be removed so that we can be reunited to God. And the wonderful thing is that God in his love has provided a way for that to be resolved for us. Jesus himself summarized that in John 3.16 by simply saying, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, so that whoever believes upon him shall not perish, that is eternally, but have everlasting life. And Jesus went on to say in the next verse, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through him. So the Bible teaches us this wonderful message of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the one who was sinless and righteous and innocent, how he came to this earth and he lived out the perfect, righteous, sinless life that you and I can never live and fulfilled the righteous requirements of a holy God that needed to be fulfilled. And then in our place as guilty sinners, it says here in our text this morning that Jesus it says, as the just was the one who suffered for the unjust. Now, this is what we often refer to, <clears throat> excuse me, as vicarious atonement. Vicarious atonement is just a, a large statement which simply indicates that Jesus suffered in our place for our sins. That Jesus, the sinless one, the innocent one, took upon himself the punishment for you and I as guilty sinners. See, listen, sin must be punished. God is a righteous and a holy God. He cannot change who he is. And God would not be good, in essence, if he did not punish sin and evil and things that happen. So sin must be punished. The wonderful thing is, instead of you and I enduring the punishment for our own sin that we deserve, God in his love has made a way through the sacrifice of his own son where Jesus lived the righteous life that we couldn't live, though we are guilty fallen sinners. And then when it came to God meeting out his just punishment against sin, Jesus said, listen, I will take the punishment for their sin. Though I'm innocent and guiltless, I'll take the punishment, I'll take the suffering of the wrath of God upon my life that they may go free. And this is what the Bible teaches us. The just for the unjust, we're guilty of sin, but Jesus suffered for our sin instead of us. And it's the opportunity for us to believe upon that, to receive that forgiveness. Notice our text also says that Christ suffered, important word I have it underlined in mind, Christ suffered once. That's important. Christ suffered once for sins. It was a one-time 
finished work of redemption that Jesus took care of when he came to this earth. He fulfilled exactly what was necessary in his redemptive work. The book of Hebrews is all about this. Listen to Hebrews 9, verse 25 and 26. It says, Not that Jesus should offer himself often as a high priest enters the most holy place every year with the blood of another. He then would have had to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now once... At the end of the ages, he has appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Again, if you're a note taker for you Bible students, Hebrews 10 verse 11 and 12 convey the exact same idea that he offered one sacrifice for sins. Now that is very, very important because there are some, unfortunately, even among circles of the church that would teach that even through certain religious rituals that the life of Christ must be sacrificed again and again and again. And whether it's through some you know, r- religious gathering or through the you know, elements of communion, that, that, that there's actually a continual sacrifice of Christ again and again and again when the Bible knows nothing of that. The Bible teaches very clearly that Christ sacrificed once. It was efficient. It was effective. That what he did was completely satisfactory. And it is a finished work. He sacrificed one time for sins. God accepted the sacrifice of Christ. Which means this, practically, there is nothing else that needs to be done. And there is nothing else, please hear me, that can be done for anyone to experience forgiveness of sins. There's nothing that needs to be done for you to experience forgiveness of your sins. Jesus already did it. He said, it is finished. And there is nothing, if you've sinned and failed like I have and everyone else, that you can do to somehow weigh out the balances of the cosmic scales in God's economy. Listen, there's nothing you can do. If there was something we could do, why would God subject his own dearly beloved son who is righteous and pure to all he experienced if there was something that we could do by jumping through some religious hoops. There's nothing that can be done. What needed to be done was done and accomplished by Christ when he died once for sins. Our text tells us, verse 18 as well, the reason for that was so that he may, it says there, bring us to God. See, what Jesus did, the text there literally indicates in the language to bring access to God or to reunite us to God. And that is so wonderful to know that what Jesus has done and accomplished in his suffering for our sins upon the cross and his resurrection has now created the way for us to have relationship with God and entrance into God's presence through faith and a relationship with his son Jesus Christ as our Savior and Lord. As sinful people, please take note that it says we must be brought into relationship with God. It says that he may bring us to God. That's very important to recognize because it's a reminder again that we don't begin in a relationship with God. We begin sinful fallen people. We have to be brought into a relationship with God. And the only person who can bring us into a relationship with God is Jesus. No religious figure can bring us into a relationship with God. You know, no effort of religious activity can bring us into a relationship with God. It is a person. 
It is the God-man. First Timothy tells us there is one God and one mediator between God and man. That's the man Christ Jesus who was fully divine and fully human. He was in touch with deity and he was in touch with humanity at the same time. And therefore, being in touch with both, he can build the bridge and reestablish what's been lost in the fall of sin. So our sin must be forgiven and that only comes through accepting the blood of the forgiveness of Jesus Christ available for our sin. And it's as we come to Christ that he alone can bring us to God. Hebrews 7 tells us that we come to God through him. Jesus declared pretty narrow-mindedly, I am the way, the truth, and no one comes to the Father except through me. And here the text reminds us of how Jesus, as a result of what he did, is the one who brings us to God if we come to him by faith. He says as well here, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit. Now regarding Jesus suffering for our sins, the just for the unjust, Hebrews 9 tells us that with his own blood, Jesus once for all obtained eternal redemption. Listen to what it says. Who through the eternal Spirit offered himself to God with, without spot unto God. So in his human body, Jesus comes being fully God, fully man simultaneously. He lives a sinless life and it says by the eternal spirit, he offers himself to God without spot or blemish, suffering and dying. It says here he was put to death in his flesh. So Jesus died a literal physical death. Jesus lived a life as a man, as that perfect mediator, being fully God and fully man, just like you and I, he experienced the death process. He was literally clinically dead. The Bible tells us buried in a tomb for three days. John chapter 20, recording Jesus' death on the cross, says that after Jesus said, it is finished, it then tells us this, and bowing his head, that is in death, he gave up his spirit. Now, interesting insight there. Jesus physically dies, but yet the eternal spirit of Christ is released from his physical frame, which is important to remember that in the midst of his death, it says here he was also made alive by the spirit. Now, we know, absolutely, we know that Jesus rose from the dead bodily three days later. We understand that. But it's important to always remember that Jesus never ceased to exist during the time between his physical death on the cross and his bodily resurrection three days later when he reappeared among humanity. Jesus, by the eternal spirit of who he was, continued living in the midst of those three days between his bodily death and his literal bodily resurrection when he reappeared among humanity. And it seems to me that the Bible gives here one of a few small insights into that time of that interim period between his physical death upon the cross and then his literal resurrection three days later of what was potentially transpiring during some of those three days before he reappeared bodily in his resurrected form. Look with me in verse 19. After it's just said he was made alive by the Spirit, it then says, verse 19, by whom, pointing back, that is, by the Spirit, he also went and preached to the spirits in prison who formerly were once disobedient when once the divine long-suffering waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared. Now, let me just say up front, I will be quick to agree that these are probably some of the most difficult 
passages in the New Testament to try and understand, to interpret, probably some of the hardest to grasp regarding their intended meeting of Peter. Why in the world are you referring to there? I mean, I was, I was, I was, I was, you know, on track with you, you know, suffering for righteousness. Like, yeah, this is good stuff, Peter. And then all of a sudden, you start talking about things. Like, where, where is this coming from now all of a sudden? And Peter's mind in the spirit here as the Lord's directing him begins to refer to something and I'll tell you this if you look at commentaries uh, or listen to teachings of even very very reputable Bible teachers and scholars you will find that there are various different interpretations that exist regarding what exactly Peter was referring to here and what exactly he meant And, and my intention is to to the best of my ability, help us to think through some of the, the possible meetings. But my encouragement is, listen, don't feel that you have to buy into or to believe what I'm sharing. You should be a Berean and study the Word of God for yourself. Uh, and just because I'm going to share what I seem to see from the text doesn't mean you need to agree with my thoughts or conviction regarding interpretation. The Bible says, test all things and hold fast to what's good. And you should always do that as a Bible student. You should always hold on to what seems good. For starters, let me just as a broad perspective, should it become so difficult and you uh, tune out in the midst of it, let me just give to you kind of the three major interpretations that seem to come uh, among scholars from these verses here in 1 Peter chapter 3. What this is referring to here, verse 19, Jesus going and preaching to the spirits in prison who were formerly disobedient during the days of Noah. Uh, one you know, idea, one interpretation is some believe that that is a reference actually to the spirit of Christ being upon Noah in the days of his generation and how the spirit of Christ was upon him in that time prior to his incarnation and how Jesus in a sense by his spirit was preaching through Noah in that generation to those who were being disobedient and that's one idea. A second idea is some believe this refers to Jesus by the Spirit during the three-day interim between his death on the cross and his resurrection going and actually preaching the gospel to those who were dead, they were departed spirits, those who had died and that specific group of those who died during the days of Noah that were disobedient to God's call through Noah to salvation and that Jesus, some believe, specifically went to this one select group uh, who had rejected the message in Noah's day and actually preached to these dead spirits, human beings who had died in disobedience. A third idea is that this refers to some time between Jesus' death and resurrection that he, by the Spirit, went to a location somewhere in the spirit realm that holds bound or imprisoned fallen spirits, or what we might call demons, and that Jesus went to these incarcerated or imprisoned spirits, demonic spirits, and made a proclamation, not preached the gospel, made a proclamation to them regarding their rebellion that was connected to what transpired in the days of Noah. Now, if you're not very thoroughly confused, I'll tell you this. My conviction is that probably the third of those three interpretations is most likely the most accurate. And in light of that, from what I've studied and thought through, I see more problems with the first two interpretations. I think the context, again, the context of what Peter's talking about here, 
The context lends itself best to fit with that third interpretation and comparing scripture with scripture as a whole throughout the word of God and exegeting the words that are used there in the original language, I think that third idea fits best. So I, I'm going to try and unpack this as we go through it together. And, and of course, I'm going to share from that perspective. But listen, you're welcome to think it through from the other perspectives. If that fits your persuasion, at the end of the day, there is nothing here that affects major doctrine regardless. So I think we can all still be friends afterwards. Okay, you don't have to stone me on the way out if, if, it's, if it's that. <laughs> but let's try and unpack what's here at least to glean what we can. It's technical, but we cover it all. So let's try and understand what's said here. Again, in verse 18, Peter's talking about Christ's suffering, his death on the cross for our sins. And notice down in verse 22, as he concludes this section, he then follows it all the way through to the resurrection and then Jesus going into heaven, sitting at the right hand of God over angels, authorities, and powers having all now been made subject to his triumphant authority. So as you take the bird's eye perspective, Peter's thoughts begin with Christ's earthly sufferings and his death and then his thoughts culminate with Jesus triumphantly raising from the dead and ascending back to glory where now every principality and power of not the physical realms but also the spiritual realms are all submitted to him. Yet regarding his death and being made alive in the spirit in a sense still to live forward, verse 19 says that it was by the spirit, here's our text now, by the spirit he went and he preached to the spirits in prison. So this seems to indicate that at some point during that interval of the three days between the death on the cross and burial and the resurrection bodily when he reappeared, that Jesus made a trip somewhere in the spiritual realm and accomplished, it seems, something that Peter gives us reference to here. It says here, first of all, that he went and preached. And when you look at that word there, it is not the word evangelizo where we get our english word evangelize which is a reference to proclaiming the gospel preaching the gospel evangelism that's not the word that the writer uses here instead he uses a different word caruso which simply means to make a proclamation so when he uses that word preach there he doesn't use evangelizo to evangelize he uses a word clearly that means to make a proclamation or declare a truth. So it does not seem to indicate that Jesus was off evangelizing somewhere, dead spirits who died in Noah's day, sort of giving them a second chance because of their disobedience and re-evangelizing them somehow. It doesn't seem to indicate that. It seems he made a declaration or a proclamation. And who was he making it to? It says to the spirits in prison. And then he adds who were formerly disobedient in the days of Noah while God's long suffering was being offered. So these spirits seem to be imprisoned because of their disobedient actions in conjunction with the days of Noah prior to the worldwide flood. That word spirits there that's used typically describes angelic spirits in the New Testament. It's a word typically that more often refers even to fallen spirits or to demons. That's how typically the usage of that word that's given there. So to me, it seems to refer to these unclean evil spirits somehow that were connected to the wickedness that happened in Noah's day that caused the world to be ultimately judged by God. And as a result of their disobedient actions, these fallen spirits are now imprisoned 
and currently incarcerated by God so that their evil cannot perpetuate any further than it already once did. Now, in relation to that, Peter seems to pick up on this same thought again in his second letter. Listen to 2 Peter 2, verse 4 and 5. And he again connects fallen angels to Noah's day. 2 Peter 2, verse 4 and 5 says, For if God did not spare the angels who sinned, but cast them down to hell and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved for judgment, and did not spare the ancient world, but saved Noah, one of eight people, a preacher of righteousness, bringing the flood on the world of the ungodly. So Peter there connects this same concept again in his second letter. Jude 6 says this. Listen to Jude 6. It speaks of angels who did not keep their proper domain, but left their own abode, and God has reserved them in everlasting chains under darkness for judgment of the great day. So it appears that there's a certain group of demons or evil spirits that during the time of Noah's day prior to the flood, when the world was waxing worse and worse and worse, that were guilty of such a grievous act of evil that God has already chosen to bind them or in a sense incarcerate them. Why? So that the evil they committed once could never somehow be repeated again. And that God already has incarcerated this particular group of spirits or unclean spirits in such a way whereby they cannot continue with what they once committed and now they are bound and imprisoned until the day of their ultimate judgment. Now in Genesis chapter 6, describing that time of great wickedness, you find there a very, very peculiar account that is given to us that indicates, it seems, that some fallen angelic spirits no doubt sent on a diabolical mission from Satan himself, entered into the days of humanity to try and corrupt the human line permanently and more likely to destroy the coming of Christ so that Messiah could not come and salvation would not be available. Genesis 6 refers to something where it says the sons of God came into the daughters of men. And there was some type of a distorted commingling and God said that flesh corrupted its way. And it seems to indicate that somehow there was this bizarre engaging of perverse sexual union between fallen angelic spirits in some way and human beings in such a capacity that created this very bizarre sort of mutated line of human offspring. It says there were giants in the earth or Nephilim on the earth in that day. And it says as the result of that, God saw that flesh had corrupted itself And it seems that potentially that was sort of the final boundary line that was crossed. Where something so distorted, so grotesque had finally happened, where a line had been crossed where God was then forced to have to intervene into humanity, though with a broken heart, and bring severe judgment upon the earth because a line was crossed that had simply gone too far. And it seems that these particular spirits being imprisoned as a result of that is who Peter is now referencing here. And again, would you please consider, you know, consider the evil that they introduced into the world. Consider the diabolical efforts of what they were trying to do 
to pollute and destroy humanity and to interrupt the coming of Christ and the messianic line and how for a time as all of that happened, how these evils uh, spirits had brought so much wickedness into the earth and it almost seemed that evil had triumphed. It almost seemed that God had failed in his creation. It seems to these imprisoned spirits that Jesus, after his victorious redemptive work on the cross, went at some point in the spirit realm to those particular imprisoned spirits and proclaimed, not evangelized, made a proclamation to them, probably in regards to the conquering work that he had now finally accomplished. And again, what did he proclaim to them? Perhaps he proclaimed to them his triumph over all sin and evil and how he just victoriously triumphed and redeemed humanity upon the cross. Colossians 2 says that Jesus on the cross disarmed principalities and powers and made a public spectacle over them, triumphing over them in it. So maybe Jesus goes to those specific spirits and he makes a proclamation and says to them, listen, God's plan was not thwarted. What you did did not thwart the will of God or the plan of God for I came and victory has been wrought and humanity has been redeemed and potentially he made a proclamation of those particular spirits in a sense that God had triumphed both from the days of Noah having still a small remnant to continue as well as to the works of the cross and his redemption and he makes this proclamation to them in great victory. Now notice Peter also tells us in our verses here that during the wicked days of Noah when the ark was being prepared, it says as well there in verse 20 that only a few, it says, eight souls were saved through water. Now if you have the New American Standard, it says there that eight souls were brought safely through the water. The idea is eight souls escaped the judgment that came when the flood waters came upon the earth. During the days of Noah, Satan was trying to contaminate humanity. Wickedness abounded. God was going to have to righteously judge the earth, but Noah was informed by God to do what? To build an ark. To build an ark to provide a means of deliverance and salvation to escape the coming judgment of God and all those who believed God's promise and entered the ark were safely delivered through the waters of judgment and they rose above the judgment of God and they were safely delivered through. In a sense, you could say those believers were spared the suffering of God's judgment ultimately as a result of what God provided. And just consider, if you would, despite all the evil on the earth at that time, the cruelty, the violence, the immoral conditions, the Bible reminds us here in verse 20 that still the divine long-suffering of God, it says, waited, waited in the days of Noah. If you know what Genesis account tells us, it, it, God waited a hundred years. Over a hundred years, God patiently endured with wickedness and abomination and horrible things happening on the earth among humanity. And 2 Peter 2 says that Noah was a preacher of righteousness. So God raises up a man who has a message of deliverance, who is telling people and warning people of the coming judgment and the consequence of sin and rebellion against God and telling them, listen, despite what's happened, God has provided a way of deliverance. God's made a way to be saved and spared from the coming judgment that's about to happen. And yet, tragically, though this was being announced, the Bible reminds us here that only a small group, it says, of eight people 
That was Noah's immediate family, him and his wife and his three sons and their wives. Only his immediate family responded, kept themselves from the coming judgment. And Peter, in context with what we're looking at here, Peter, knowing the wicked times that these Christians were living in, in the Roman world, when there was an extreme, intense persecution from the anti-Christian spirit among the Roman government in the world in that day, and how it was becoming very corrupt morally, and how it was hard and difficult to stay committed to Christ, Peter, writing to these believers, reminds them of what Noah endured in his days, and how Noah and his family were able to keep themselves pure despite the pressures of pollution and the pressures of corruption that were coming upon humanity and how they remained faithful and trusted God to the end. And no doubt Peter's sharing this probably to encourage these suffering believers. Listen, I know there's an effort to pollute your Christian ethics. I know there's pressure to compromise and, and things that are trying to paralyze you in fear so that you don't stay faithful to Christ and you just make concessions and it's hard to be committed as a Christian, but he's saying, look, you may be few in number, but the presence of the Lord is with you. And if you continue on, you can endure and you can rise above. And though it is hard and difficult, the Lord is with you. And those who are in the ark, here's the whole point of it. Those who are in the ark, <clears throat> yes, they suffered for a season. They were mocked. Of course, Noah and his family were mocked. Your families, you're out of your mind. The stuff that you believe. You're radical. Just, this is foolishness. What is it talking about? We've been going on like this for years. Nothing's going to happen. God's not going to interrupt humanity. And, and you're just a goody two-shoes, Noah. You're just, you're just you're a goody two-shoes. And, and, and no doubt Noah and his family experienced the persecution for their belief and their convictions. But through their faith, though they suffered for a season, they ultimately escaped the more severe suffering of the judgment of God that came against the world ultimately in the ark, they were lifted above that and safely preserved from the suffering of God's judgment. And listen, gang, the same is true with us in our generation today. We live in a world that much like the days of Noah right now is going to cause us to suffer for righteousness sake. It's not easy. And here's a newsflash. It's going to get harder. And I'm not a doom and gloom guy. I'm just a realist. It's going to get harder to stay committed to Christ. It's become more difficult to believe what you believe and stay faithful to Jesus. And there's going to be suffering as a result of righteous snake, righteousness sake. But I, but I tell you this, there is coming an hour. There is coming an hour when there is a way more severe form of suffering that is about to come upon this earth. And if you continue to endure in faith and following Jesus Christ, you will have the privilege to escape that hour and that dreadful experience and be brought instead into a new and a glorious life, even as Noah and his family were delivered from that suffering and brought into a new and a glorious life on the other side. And thinking of the ark, it seems now, Peter and how the ark delivered them from an old life and brought them into a new life, the symbolic idea of all that causes Peter to sort of have another thought, it seems here, of a type or a symbolic figure that he then speaks of in the next sentences, how water baptism is often a type or a symbol in the same way of what it does. He says, verse 21, there is also a type which now saves us. He says, baptism not the removal of the filth of the flesh, Peter wants to clarify that, 
but the answer of a good conscience toward God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So as Peter's thinking through these things, how the waters of the flood and the ark, they were a a type of the end of one life and being brought into a new life, it now makes him think of another type or another symbol, if you would, that points to salvation, and that's water baptism. And how that's a type and a symbol pointing to our salvation experience by its type and what it represents. Uh, Let me begin by just saying this. Please be careful here because what Peter is talking about is not baptismal regeneration. And unfortunately, there are some who who zero in on one verse and they they look at verse 20 and they say, see that? It says there is something that now saves us, baptism. There you go. And and, and listen, that's taken one verse and taken it way out of context. And, 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 And what it does is it contradicts the rest of Scripture as a whole. And for those who would say, hey, look, there it says it right there. There's something that now saves us, baptism that saves us. My first thought would be read on. Because the next thing Peter says is, I'm not talking about the removal of the filth of sin from your flesh. I'm talking about the answer of a good conscience towards God. Listen, please understand and study the Bible to see. Ephesians 2, 8, 9 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. That not of yourselves. It's a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. And when we begin to say baptism, important as it is, in obedience to the Lord. But when we try and say water baptism is a requirement or necessary for salvation, we've created a work. We've created a work. And we have a dilemma because Jesus told the thief on the cross who was about to die, who just said, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus said, today you will be with me in paradise. He didn't say, listen, I'd love to bring you in. If you can convince the Roman guards to unpin you and get us down to some water, I'll baptize you and we'll make sure that you'll be with me in paradise. No. What did he do? He turned his heart in simple faith. In simple faith. And he received the gracious offer of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of his sins. Peter says here, it's not the removal of the filth of the flesh. Baptism doesn't remove our sins. The blood of Jesus is the only thing that removes our sins. And Peter says what baptism is, it's the answer of a good conscience toward God. See, as we obey Jesus in water baptism, as we're commanded to, what that does, no doubt, is it gives us a sense of inner encouragement in our conscience as a Christian that I'm right with God. This is a representation outwardly that I'm declaring publicly, I'm right with God now. I've experienced God's salvation and and water baptism is a time for us to identify with our relationship with Jesus, to do what we were commanded to do and reflect the salvation experience outwardly. And I would bring to your attention in connection to that to realize that water baptism in that day in the ancient culture meant way more to those people than it does to us probably in our day and age. See, in those early days of the church, Uh, There were no altar calls. That's something that came many, many centuries later when people started doing altar calls and having people come to the front in meetings. Uh, That didn't even exist in the early days of church history. In that day, your altar call was your water baptism. 
because it was something culturally that people knew and understood. And when you chose to be baptized publicly down at the river or wherever, you were conveying to society your spiritual convictions and your belief system. And you were saying, I'm leaving behind this old way of life or this worship of idols and I am now following the Messiah, Jesus Christ. And that was their altar call. That was their public profession and representation, which often came with great cost. And Peter's saying, listen, I know you may suffer as the result of, of making that public profession. But he says, but look, in good conscience, you can know that you're right towards God. You can know that you're right with God. In fact, it's almost as if Peter wants to make sure we don't misunderstand he connects at the end of the text there that what really saves us, he says in the end of verse 21, is through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And Romans 10 confirms that, saying to us in Romans 10, 9, if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart God's raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Again, water baptism, is it important? Yes. Should you do it? If you're a born-again Christian, you've experienced salvation most certainly. When I hand out a little sheet for people who want to get water baptized, one of the statements that's on that says this, my water baptism is the outward profession or public announcement of the inward spiritual work that's already happened in my heart. See, that's what water baptism is. It's the public declaration to the world around us that our life is united with Christ and we want to share our salvation experience, that we're not ashamed to be one with Christ and we're identifying with Christ in his death, burial, and his resurrection as we come back up out of the water. And Peter, as he's thinking about this, somehow sees, take notice, this type of figure where water baptism is similar in some ways in Peter's mind to the waters of the flood and the ark in what took place and he kind of connects the two therefore figuratively and this is where I think Peter was trying to go with this. In the same way the waters of the flood as I said a minute ago represented what? The leaving behind of an old life and being delivered and brought into the beginning of a brand new life and how the waters of the flood and the ark rising above for those who were in it basically what was that? That was an end of an old way of life that they knew and it was the beginning of a new life that God was bringing them into. Same is true, is it not, with water baptism. Our water baptism as a type in the same way pictures that same thing. As we're immersed in the water, as we baptize you as a Christian, as you go under the water, in a sense, you're, you're in a sense relating to the crucifixion and the death of Christ. And when you come up out of the water, you're identifying with the resurrection of Christ. And what you're communicating publicly through that baptism pictures, I want to be dead to that old way of life. I don't want to live the way I used to live. I'm dead to the old way of life, and I want to live a new life now in Christ Jesus. And it's a public declaration. I'm done with that life. That's an old person. I don't want... It's buried. I want to die to my sin and self. And like Paul said, it's no longer I who live but Christ lives in me. And the life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God. And in that same way, it sort of pictures, it seems Peter in his mind connects these two things. Now notice as he goes in now to verse 22, as I said, it's almost like he returns to that train of thought before he went off here on us from verse 18 where he was talking about Jesus' suffering and dying on the cross for our sins. He now comes back to his resurrection in verse 21 and then says 22, he's also gone into heaven is at the right hand of God, angels and authorities 
and powers having been made subject to him. So Peter shows how Christ's suffering and death culminates also ultimately what? In his coronation as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And he shows us that Jesus' suffering was not in vain. Jesus' suffering for doing good was not in vain, and nor in any way was at the end of all things quite the opposite was true, Peter said. His suffering actually brought about something wonderful on the other side of that. In the same way that we often need to be patient and endure through suffering for the same, it actually brought something wonderful. Peter speaks of how Jesus not only resurrected, but he ascended back into glory. And Peter was an eyewitness of that, remember, as an apostle. He saw Jesus literally ascend back into heaven and he says, in Jesus, our suffering Jesus, now he's a risen king and he's ascended and now he's at the right hand of the Father in heaven. And the right hand of any king's throne was a place of prominence and great honor. He's saying, Jesus, yes, he was rejected and suffered initially for a season, but ultimately he was raised to a place of great glory. He was delivered out of that and now he's in the place of greatest honor. He speaks of Jesus' exaltation in our verse here saying that angels, notice again, he's talking about angels, angels, authorities, and powers have all now been made subject to him. Everything, Peter says, is now subject to Jesus. Everything in the physical realm and the spiritual realm is submitted to the Lord Jesus Christ as he rules over all those things. Now, let me leave you with a few thoughts this morning. First of all, is it not wonderful to know that there is complete and total forgiveness for any and all sin that you've ever committed because of what Jesus has done? And, and, and listen, for some of you this morning who still struggle with guilt over that one thing or that particular season, listen, maybe this morning you need to choose to believe that and to receive that for your conscience sake that it does not matter what the stain the blood of Jesus Christ can wash you clean and make you white as snow any and all sin I don't care what it has been Jesus said it's finished he covered it all it's forgiven believe that receive the forgiveness of Christ let the Lord take the guilt away Secondly, this morning, despite what some of you may be struggling through in your life right now, let us remember, as Peter says at the end here, Jesus is on the throne. And you may be struggling right now, but Jesus is on the throne. And everything is under his control, the Bible says. And everything is actually subject to to the authority and the lordship of Jesus Christ. And maybe this morning, the Lord may be encouraging you to not only remember that, but as everything else is in submission to him, maybe Jesus is saying, I'm just waiting for you to just let your heart be in submission to me in regards to what you're struggling through. And trust me, trust me, I've got it under control. And thirdly and finally, I would leave you with this thought. Remember that Jesus himself said this. He said, as it was in the days of Noah, so shall it be in the coming of the Son of Man. Hey, can I encourage you as we consider the days of Noah, look around. Look around. They were doing some really wicked, evil things, and there was even some bizarre, distorted thing that was happening, messing with humanity and its offspring in that day. And did you notice just this week, all of a sudden, we're seeing now news flashes of three parent children? 
And we're feeling the liberty now to begin to co-mingle multiple parents to make a child, to maybe rule out certain things or insert certain things. Listen, we are crossing lines morally and spiritually that we have never crossed before. And God's going to interrupt humanity soon. That's why it's time for us to be ready to live for Christ and to come to know Christ if you have not done yet, yet this morning.